Hello, and welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. Before we dive deep in today's intense topic, let me share a little behind-the-scenes tidbit. Did you know that while preparing for this episode, my research took me down so many rabbit holes, I almost ended up in Wonderland? Alice, the Mad Hatter, and even the White Rabbit were all giving me side-eyes. But don't worry, I managed to climb back out, not without some odd tea party invitations to bring you the real, riveting story of Ruby Ridge. Alright, enough with my misadventures into podcast research land. Let's get to it. This is Scarlet Tavern. Right. Well, that was a different intro. Yeah. I'll, I, it's kind of hard to make jokes about Ruby Ridge. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I, I think that may hit some wrong chords if I do the jokes. Um, so, how to I, make a I, joke I, not I, about Ruby Ridge. Uh, folks, I just want to point this out. I've known Caleb for a while. I can tell you right now, he's made some of the darkest, most inappropriate jokes I've ever heard of. But by God, we finally found something that actually tempered his humor. So I have changed that over tell the you years. Something. Yeah, that is true. Um, but, um, so, w- the way we were planning on doing this was originally we were going to release a 9-11 episode near 9-11. Obviously... The time of this recording, that is in five days. So, not going to be possible. But, basically, the entire month of November, we are going to start doing um, terrorist stuff. Uh, this, starting with Ruby Ridge, then moving on to Waco, then moving to Timothy McVeigh and Oklahoma City, and then we will cap it off with 9-11. Obviously, later on in the series, we'll probably do some more terrorist stuff. So we have, like, the Boston Marathon bomber and stuff like that. But I did want to hit 9-11 during the anniversary month. Um, Can you believe it has been 22 years since 9-11? Uh... Yeah, I was thinking about that it's... the other day. I was getting out of the shower and I was like, I was thinking about the podcast. And I was like, oh, nine nine eleven. Yeah, that was like twelve years ago. And I was like, wait, no, twenty. That was two thousand one. That's twenty two years. Yeah, I mean, we're you and I are the kids of nine eleven. You know, yeah. we're the ones who all were in school when we when it all went down and having to. I yeah. mean, I honestly did. I, I did not learn about what really happened until I got home. Yeah. And so, so I'll give my perspective. We'll, we'll offer three very unique perspectives. Obviously, we're not touching on nine eleven today, but I want to talk about it because again, it is in five days. It's in less than a week, uh, the anniversary. So, um, we'll give three very different perspectives. So, my perspective. Um, I was in elementary school, I believe, um, and I I don't remember what we were doing in class, but I remember 
all the teachers getting phone calls and being told to turn on the TVs. And our our classrooms had those TVs that were up at the big tube TVs that were up in the corner of the classrooms on the walls. So the teacher, because we had uh, our elementary school had uh, news every morning. Like, oh, you had those too. I, I was didn't part. Have I was part. School. I was part of the news team for a little uh. bit. So, um, yeah, I we had the news, so we had those TVs, and um, so they ended up turning it on. And obviously, I was I was two thousand one. I was nine, so I didn't really understand everything but i remember i remember the teachers freaking out what nine years old i would have been what grade would i have been in fifth no like third or fourth i think something like that um and i remember them freaking out and then all the parents coming to pick up the kids because they believe schools would be hit next. And in my town, uh, we had a, f- like, it, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was a fertilizer plant uh, that they created fertilizer. <clears throat> we had a fertilizer uh, manufacturing facility, and yeah. we also had a chemical weapon not weapon but a chemical research facility um that was owned by a um three-letter company um first initial is a d um and uh they did like um insecticide and that kind of thing research but it was very hush-hush research. So the rumor was so that it was that government it was, stuff. Yeah, that it was a little bit more than just um, insecticide kind of thing. But that was put on a um, a watch. Yeah, so we they did threat analysis. And the we were, our hometown could have been one of the targets because of that. Because it would cause a mass casualty. So they evacuated all the schools and everything. And I remember going home and we went to Uncle Mike's house and all watched the news um, because we didn't have cable TV then. Um, And I remember my dad getting woken up and having to go into work because he was a deputy so and he'll give you his his remembrance of that but and it turns out fun fact and ben i don't know if i ever told you this but the hijackers trained at a flight school in my hometown what i knew so, they trained so I knew they trained in florida but i didn't piper, know it was your hometown piper piper aircrafts um, they trained at a school called Flight Safety International. Yep, which was um, held by Piper. Right. It was right next to Piper Aircraft. Um, now, Flight Safety International has schools all throughout the world, not yeah. just Florida. But the one that happens to be in Florida is right there at Vero <laughs> Beach. In my hometown. 
yeah. So, so and... the, these guys that boarded these planes crashed into the Twin Towers, trained in my hometown. So, yep. needless to say, that school was shut down for a little bit. Uh, and they did some serious vetting. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we'll, we'll actually jump right over into your side of it, because I want Ben's last being a New Yorker. But we'll jump right into your side. But correct me if I'm wrong, but the sheriff's office made it to that school fairly quickly when they found out. Um, what, how we found out was, well, first of all, I remember that morning I was actually working midnights, had gotten home and I got woken up by your mom, um, who was like, Hey, there's something going on we need to go over to Mike's house. So I just threw on some clothes, went over with everybody and, um, we're watching this whole thing unfold on the news. And at that point, my pager goes off and I'm like, Oh, gotta yes. go. Yes. Kids. We had pagers. Pagers. Then. Pagers. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, oh, God, I know. Right. And next house. The did next you, house. Did you take, did you take notes with your Palm pilot? I had a Palm uh, actually, pilot. Yes. I had a Palm yes, pilot. Yes, I did. Yes. I, I, know, I know. I had a Blackberry too. Stay smart, man. Yeah. So ended up having to go in and we were put on standby, but how we found out about flight safety was myself and a couple other um, deputies were patrolling in that area. And I just, had a funny feeling about a vehicle that was there and I'm like, this doesn't, it doesn't relate. It's, it should not be here. This just doesn't what's going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I went ahead and at the time I had a laptop and ran the tag and, um, I get immediately get a phone call from dispatch and they're like, you need to go over to a private channel. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? Uh, did you run such and such a tag? I'm like, yeah, why? You need to back away from that vehicle and don't go anywhere near the vehicle or the school. And when you can get to a secure landline, call us. So I'm like, okay, well, we had a substation right down the road. Yes, kids, we so had landlines. What's that? I said, yes, kids, we had landlines back then, too. We did. We did. So I <laughs> used the the secure landline there at the substation, called in. Turns out that that vehicle, several other vehicles, and the school were under, under surveillance by the FBI as uh, members of the terrorist group that was responsible for the attack. So that's kind of how it came about for us. Yeah, my my little hometown, very very small hometown, ended up behind a huge plot. So uh, not many things came out of my hometown, except for that, uh, another terrorist, and a country singer, Jake Owen. And a high-profile murderer. Yes, 
Yes. I had a couple of those. Which actually, um, uh, Bundy came through our town back in the day. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. the family of the woman he murdered in the town just above mine still lives there. Fun fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Ben, you grew up in New York. We're in New York for 9-11. How was it as a New Yorker? Obviously, you were young, but... So, I mean, even being in Buffalo on the far side of New York, I mean, Buffalo and New York City, we're, we are oh, yeah. literally... We're on the extreme, you know, ends of the state, but... Um, but your state as a whole. Yeah, for state as a whole, everything got activated. So, one of the things... I remember a few things. First off, I remember the teachers acted very cagey. That's that's the only word I can think of it, so... Trying not to I, show that they're freaked out and not freak you guys yeah, out, I but... Kept, I, kept, I kept remembering the... the so the way my school was, it was an elementary and a middle school all in one. And I was in the middle school part. I was in the eighth grade. Um, so the middle school teachers were kind of would bounce between each other in the hallway. But then I started noticing they keep running, you know, the sixth grade teacher, he keeps running over to the eighth grade, which is where I'm at. Seventh grade's going here, there. And then for some reason, our fourth grade teacher showed up. I'm like, what the hell is she doing here? Um... The principal showed up, and then, of course, then somebody's like, what's going on? It's like, just everybody, please keep the people of New York and Washington, D.C. in your prayers. And I was like, that's weird. For those who don't know, I went to a Catholic school. Yes. Um, so, so we actually finished the day. I, I, I believe we finished the day. <laughs> I can't remember, but I it was... It was really odd, and then I started seeing the where we were located. We were right by the um, the pickup area where like the parents would come to pick up their kids, and I started seeing them. And I can't remember seeing like you know parents were getting out of their car like what, what the heck is going on? And we're like what the hell is going on? So I get on the bus going to my grandparents' house because that's where I got dropped off on the bus. Bus driver said, "Yeah, some Yahoo just crashed." He was an old guy. Some Yahoo just crashed a plane into a building in New York City, and I'm like, "What? Oh, that's what this is all about." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Country's going to hell in a handbasket, kid. He said that. That's 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 a direct quote. He actually said that to me. The man that probably served in World War Two. Yeah, actually, I think he did. <laughs> actually, I I, think, I genuinely think he did. Now that I think about it, because he he was definitely a veteran. I know that, that much. Um, so I get home, my, my grandparents got the news on, and they're like, come here, and they start showing me, and I see, at this point, when I got home, obviously, the towers have fallen, uh, the Pentagon has been hit, they, they were already, the newest thing on there was the crash of the plane, Flight 93, into, um, uh, into the Pennsylvania, uh, my mom got off work early. She came pick me up, and I remember two things. So going home, we passed by one of these streets, and on the street was a kid from my school. His dad was a state trooper, and there was in this part, particular part where I lived, there was a lot of like cops and firefighters who lived there. They were all packing their trucks up. Oh yeah, especially the up. state troopers because they can be yeah. activated to New York City. Yeah, and that's exactly why I found out later. That's what they did. The one dude, the state trooper, everybody, he was just, he got activated. He got sent there in a 
and a few of the firefighters and EMSs in the area were, were packing up and going. Like they were, you could, I remember seeing him. I'm like, hey, that's Mr. So, I'm not going to say names. I'm, but hey, there's Mr. So and so. What's he doing? And mom's, and my mother's like, I think he's going to New York City. I'm like, oh. Uh, another thing. Uh, so the part of Buffalo I lived in has a very predominant um, Muslim community, mostly people from uh, Yemen. Uh, usually they're pretty active in the sense of like they're always walk you always see somebody you know in middle eastern garb walking around with their kids and everything ghost town oh yeah what like all that was left there was a tumbleweed that's all you needed i was like where is everybody like everything was on like lockdown like and that's not to say the other parts of buffalo were active like Everything that's in New York, we were so like, oh my god, they're coming for us. It, you could have thrown a rock right down Delaware Avenue, and Caleb and Aaron have been to Buffalo, so they know that this is a pretty busy area. Yeah. You could have thrown a rock at full speed, like a fastball. Well, and it's you interesting that you say that, um, Caleb. I don't know if you remember Brian, the mechanic. Oh, I Number. thought it starts with an R. Last yes. name. Okay. Because I, I don't yes. want to. We're not throwing names out there. Yes. I, yes. I almost said it um, just out of habit. I know. So did I. And I was like, nope, let me stop. Um, he was um, uh, with the sheriff's office at the same time I was. Hey, buddy, if you're listening, well, hi. He was also part of a certain military group. I mean, can we say? Yeah, yeah. We're not saying a, his a name. Color. We're not saying a color. Yeah, we're not. Uh, yeah, we're not uh, saying. We're not saying his name, so we can say it. Okay, so it, it won't won't jeopardize anything. He yeah. he happened to be um, a member of um, Green Berets response team, and that at the time that nine eleven happened, um, we had all been talking back and forth, back and forth, and he looks at me and he goes, "I have to go." I'm like, what do you mean? I have you have to go. He goes, I have to drive up to Patrick to get on a secure line to talk to my commander, and that's all he would say. Well, he and I had talked because of our mutual backgrounds on what he did and, and that kind of thing. So I knew at that point that this was bigger than what we knew. And then and, right after that is when we got activated to Iraq and yeah. Afghanistan. And and he disappeared for what three months, four months. He was, and he nobody was knew the, where he was. He was the one of the first teams with boots on the ground. Yeah. So. Oh dang. Yeah, I should tell yeah. you how much of a badass he was. Yeah, I mean, still is cool guy. Still is down to earth. I mean, do anything for you, but when the shit hit the fan. He's the one you wanted to look over and see next year. He was a member of SWAT, did all of that stuff. Yeah, he, he just he, just all around awesome and, guy. And then retired from the sheriff's office and opened a garage. Yeah, to repair yes. cars. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, and I um, I don't know what he's doing now, but now another t- interesting tidbit about my part of Buffalo, Lackawanna. I don't think I actually showed you guys Lackawanna when, we, when you guys were up here. We drove through it, I think. Yeah. Um, but my Lackawanna, where I'm born and raised from, uh, we actually had an Al-Qaeda cell. Like, they were Not recruited, home, homegrown, 
like Al Qaeda sent a recruiter to Buffalo, and he they recruited technically they recruited seven. Uh, they call it the Lackawanna Six, mostly because these six guys were caught, were left behind and and caught. The seventh guy somehow got away, or he went to Yemen for something. He ended up getting killed by a drone. Thank you, President Obama. We'll uh, um, we'll you can continue, but we'll uh, we'll make a note to add them into our nine eleven episode. Oh yeah, yeah. Because um, we'll talk about the school in my town too. Yeah, so that's also Buffalo's kind of defamed in the war on terror. We actually had a, um, we had a, an Al Qaeda cell, a sleeper cell, as they kept calling it. it was a sleeper cell. I'm told, um, officially they downplayed it a lot. They said that yeah, they were Al Qaeda and they were recruited, but they weren't like activated. They were just kind of like on standby mode in case like hey, you're waiting for a call to go do something. But they never specified, but through the, um, well, as I like to call the Western New York um, grapevine, because there's, if you go in the middle, so, somehow there's always somebody from, from Western New York, anywhere you go, in the military or anywhere. Um, word got back to us, it's like, uh, no, they were quite, they were actually a lot more active, we downplayed it because, um, yeah, we didn't want to start a race riot, basically, because that's exactly what would have happened. They said it's like that. Probably nobody really wanted to see part of Buffalo get burned to the ground for yeah. the actions of, of of seven assholes. And for those that don't know what a sleeper cell is, it's literally what it sounds like. It's a group of terrorists that are living their everyday lives, usually in America, um, and they get activated by a higher up. And they are sent to do specific tasks. Um, Sleeper Cell can have three people. It can have 50. Um, If you're curious, there was an amazing show called Sleeper Cell. Mm -hmm. um, Where in, in the show, the there was an FBI agent who is a practicing Muslim who goes undercover and joins a sleeper cell and yeah great show only had only had two seasons unfortunately but it was one of the best shows and if you're interested about how sleeper cells work go watch sleeper cell because it was amazing a little lesser known fact um after the whole 9-11 incident the fbi came under scrutiny because they were aware of the 125 sleeper cells that are currently active in the United States. Oh boy, add that to the list of, of right. uh, failings of the FBI. And and the the um, the number may be higher. I, I don't know. Uh, it seems to me that at the time it was like 124 or 125. I forget. Uh, active sleeper cells during 9/11. Yes. Uh. Let me find out. And in the, I, I distinctly remember because it was in one of our briefings with the sheriff's office that um, the FBI had to eat a little crow and said, yeah, we were aware. We didn't think it was a, a valid threat. Blah, blah, blah. Well, well as we're going to about to see, um, this is uh, the, the track record of the FBI and the uh, U.S. government when dealing with terrorists, both uh, foreign-born terrorists and domestic homegrown ones is uh certainly uh gonna be 
something's going to be left desired, I would say. Yeah, I mean, historically, unfortunately, they, they tend to take a lackadaisical approach initially. And then when there's a shit show that comes of it, they do a knee-jerk reaction to try and uh, recover from that and create a bigger shit show and the next reaction. And it usually takes them three or four incidences to finally settle down and go, oh, okay, now, now we got it under control. And I don't know why they do that, but they do, unfortunately. Um, I, I can't find any exact information that's not classified. Um, I'm sure if we just go to the Jaeger Hoover building, they'll gladly let us have that. Oh, sure. I mean, sure. I mean, I, I do still have connections, but... Um, okay, so... Please don't let's, do you don't do anything that gets me my clearance revoked and gets me under indictment. Let let's get on to today's topic finally. Ruby Ridge. So Yes. Randy Weaver was born on January third, nineteen forty eight, in Villisca, Iowa. Villisca is a small town in southwestern Iowa, and his rural setting likely influenced his appreciation for a more isolated and self reliant lifestyle. That's saying it nicely. Um so there isn't a significant amount of publicized detail regarding his early years, but it can be inferred from the environment that he grew up in in a predominantly white rural setting, which may have influenced his later views and choices. After high school, Randy served in the U.S. Army during the late 60s and 70s. It is rumored that he was a Green Beret. Again, there are there's evidence pointing, if you look at his DD-214, saying that he and i i may try and do a records pull for this because he's dead now so i may i may try and do a records pull and see if we can get his dd214 um so he according to his dd214 he was not a green beret but according to what he said which we know a lot of people do like to embellish their careers um, he says he was a Green Beret, indicating that he received specialized training in unconventional warfare, among other military skills. Of course, he is in the Vietnam era. If he was truly a Green Beret in Vietnam, he is one of the baddest men on the planet. Because those guys were insane. Um, so, being in Vietnam, coupled with the general distrust, distrust many had for the government during those years might have planted early seeds of skepticism and disillusionment towards authority and government and his psyche. Randy Weaver married Vicki Jordison in the early 70s. Together they had four children, Sarah, Samuel, Rachel, and uh, Elisheba. Vicki was known to have strong religious beliefs which centered around an impending apocalypse. Her beliefs seemed to have played a significant role in the family's decisions, including her move to Idaho. I believe that they were like hardcore Christian. Like, like even like I believe like they were like those stere almost stereotypical deep backwoods ap apocalyptic, you know, fi fire and brimstone Baptist types. I don't know if they were like Seventh Day Seventh Day Adventist or any of those other things, but they definitely held, like, some pretty radical views on... Uh, she's LDS. She's Mormon. Church of oh, Latter-day okay. Saints. Oh, so, good. just as bad. They're basically terrorists. 
Um, Mormons are <laughs> basically terrorists, but oh god, please direct all hate mail to Ben Dot Edwards. No. <laughs> um, no, uh, there's some extremist extremism inside the LDS, um, especially with coupling with being white on top of that. Um, it kind of played into a little bit of what's going to happen. Uh, in the early 80s, possibly influenced by their evolving beliefs and desire to break away from mainstream society, the Weaver family decided to relocate. They sought an off-the-grid lifestyle and chose Ruby Ridge, a remote area in North Idaho. They purchased a 20-acre property there and built a cabin with modern amenities, further emphasizing their desire for isolation and self-sustainability. The family lived a simple life on Ruby Ridge, homeschooling their children, largely keeping to themselves. They were preparing for the end times, a belief strongly held particularly by Vicky. Now, uh, one thing that should be noted about this area we're about to move into... Uh, basically, uh, Randy, the Weaver's uh, neighbors. This area, as he said, is northern Idaho, but just to give you an idea, if anybody ever looks at a map, we're talking like the top panhandle of of, of Idaho. This is like the most, this is as extreme, as isolated as you get. A lot of people go up to this place to just kind of be forgotten. This is an area where you'll find a lot of, like, breakaway extremist groups, anti-government types having their little compounds up there. At least it was back then. I don't know about about today, but... And then, just for... Just so everybody knows, they paid $5,000 for this property. That's actually not... I've seen pictures of the property and how big it is. That's actually kind of a steal. Especially, yeah. I mean, in the and that's in the eighties. Twenty acres for five grand. I I would pay that in a heartbeat. I would like to know the Weaver's real estate develop dealer because he. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. Um. So during their time at Ruby Ridge, the Weavers began to adopt more extremist views. This included white uh, separatist beliefs, which advocate for a separate nation or region exclusively for white individuals. Randy Weaver became acquainted with members of the Aryan Nation, a white supremacist group. Although he was not an active member of the group, his association with them brought him to the attention of law enforcement. Now I will say that the Aryan Nation did have meetings at Ruby Ridge. Um, they were seen there frequently, which again is how he got on their radar. People were following the Aryan Nation because, for lack of a better term, Aryan Nation are terrorists as well. And also, in, the, in a few years before Ruby Ridge, the Aryan Nation and other white supremacist groups have been pretty active in the terms of their own... Um, acts of terrorism they had been involved in a fairly high level I say high level in the sense that it's a high profile assassination of a kind of a, a Jewish shock jock um, he was known to be very antagonistic to white supremacists and other uh, hate groups across the nation to the point where he like almost would like encourage them to call his station and he would you know he, he, he'd get them into these little debates he'd get them fl worked up flustered up and then he just hung up on them and 
Uh, he was actually killed in a, while he was leaving dinner, I, I believe, with like his ex-wife or something. And I forget the name. I'm going to have to look it up. But he was a, a shock jock, and he was killed by white supremacists. And then not long after, that same group got into a shootout with the Washington State Police and the FBI. So this is everybody's getting really like, okay, the white supremacists and the Aryan and the neo-Nazis are like getting really froggy lately. Well, um, and and so keep in mind this is late 70s when what you're talking about now is late 70s um, because Ruby Ridge was in the 80s. Um, you gotta understand what people need to understand is the reason that this happened is you have the whole MLK movement. MLK died in 68 um I believe it was 68. So that really sparked a lot of stuff for to abolish segregation and things like that. Um, bringing together, you started to have schools that were starting to mix races, things like that, um, all throughout the 70s. And it, it's, it's funny to think about because, like, of course us as 90s kids and things like that where we don't ever think about this but like my dad was born in 1970 and in the world you grew up in segregation was still a trickling thing it was didn't really segregation didn't really stop until the 80s oh yeah i mean there was still I mean, you were a little it different. Was, it was it was one of those things where, like, for me, it was different because I'm a military brat. I'm an Air Force brat. Always was, you know, 20 years. So we had our clique, and it didn't matter race, color, creed. Um, it was if you're um, because McGuire at the time. Um, this was before it became um, the joint base uh, that it is now. Um, so there was McGuire and Fort Dix that were basically separated by a road and a gate. And we would ride our bikes from McGuire over to Fort Dix, hang out with the Army brats. They would come over to the Air Force base, hang out with the Air Force brats. Every once in a while, we'd go down to... Uh, the naval base, which was down the road, and hang out with them, but in in that uh, dynamic carried on into the high school when we went into public school. So for us, there was that camaraderie, regardless of what what color their skin was. But you could still see, like when you would go off base into town, even though it was proclaimed that well you know segregation is dead those looks were there you know when we'd have our our non-caucasian friends it didn't matter if they were black indian whatever we'd get the looks you know and you're talking that was all the way up until like man i don't know 84 ish 85 so up to the time that i was like 14 15 years old and fun fact my dad went to high school and was best friends with a world famous singer. Um, yeah. my dad was yeah. best friends with the lead singer of all for one. 
Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Delius Kennedy. Yeah. A quick thing. Um, the the murdered uh, uh, radio DJ that I was talking about is well, was Alan Berg. He uh-huh. was killed by a white supremacist group simply called uh, the Order. Yeah. All of them yes. were. They were all con- con- They were all convicted on federal civil rights violations. 190 years to 200 years combined for all of them. I think most of them are dead now in prison. Yeah. So. So keep that in mind when we're talking about Aryan Nation, kind of this uprise. It's It was... MLK was doing amazing things in his life. MLK, I truly believe we would not have the abolishment of segregation if MLK did not exist. Um, he was an amazing pioneer. Yes, he was. Um, unfortunately, his life was ended very shortly uh i couldn't imagine how different everything would be if he were still alive um the the stuff that he would still be fighting for to this day because unfortunately and we'll we'll talk about this when it gets to a few other things because we will be eventually be talking about some some more recent movements and all of that stuff but Unfortunately, there are points where America, unfortunately, repeats bad history. There are, it seems to be, every 10, 15 years, we get a repeat. Um, Yes, we do, unfortunately. We, unfortunately, uh, and of course I'm talking about Rodney King. Um, We're talking about that incident, and then... We move 10, 15 years, and then we have the whole George Floyd incident and things like that, And unfortunately. And uh, eventually, later on, we will touch on all that stuff more modern, because I was, I was in law enforcement during George Floyd and BLM and all of that stuff. So we will touch on that eventually. But um, so... With that being said, in the late 1980s, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, better known to as everybody's most hated three-letter organization, the ATF, because um, they don't do anything but take our guns. And kill dogs, apparently. Yeah. Uh, they got involved with Randy Weaver due to an undercover operation. Weaver was entrapped into illegally selling two sawed-off shotguns to an ATF informant. Okay. This is the thing. We 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 get the words here. He was entrapped into illegally selling two sawed-off shotguns. There's no such thing as entrapment when it comes to this. Um, it it's an undercover sting. You're not supposed to know that they are a cop, so entrapment can't exist for this. Um, so he illegally sold shotguns to an undercover or to an ATF informant. And that's a, that's the key difference here with it. So this individual is not an agent as in like man went to like the ATF Academy and he went to the way my knowledge is about this. This was not, this was more or less a criminal who had gotten caught by the ATF for some other thing had agreed to turn to basically just be that he was a paid informant the atf paid him to give information to agents on activities now in this case he is he was 
operating in the Aryan Nation, and he knew Randy Weaver, and he... The, obviously, this is where the first of many controversies are. This informant was basically told, you're not giving us anything, the money, the money is being cut off, so the informant, in an effort to keep his basically his government check coming in as it was approached Randy Weaver this again this is coming from Randy Weaver uh, approached him saying hey Randy I know I see I hear you're hard up for some money I've got these shotguns I need you to modify to like saw off the barrel and modify them uh, I'll give you 500 bucks to like these four shotguns go modify them for me now again Randy Weaver while his family is trying to live off grid that doesn't he he's not bringing in an income he can't Correct. he he is not more or less randy weaver is not in a position to say to say oh hey sorry guy i can't do that that's illegal oh 500 bucks to do that yeah yeah i'll do yeah. it well I and mean, of, what course, is, what of does, course he's randy... and he's off the grid too so oh how am what i is, gonna get caught exactly well and besides what does randy weaver care he doesn't like the government anyway he yeah. doesn't recognize these laws Fuck you so so yeah so in this case, it, it, is it entrapment? I personally think it kind of is. I mean, as you said, an agent has rules, and even an informant ha has to have some rules on this. He can't go. He can't approach the person. He can't say, "Hey, Randy, do this, and I'll give you, and I'll give you five hundred bucks." Okay, I did it. Five hundred bucks. You're under arrest. Yeah. Okay. So, whoa. so, and here, here's. Well, I understand it. Here's the thing: is we. We in law enforcement, if you've worked law enforcement long enough, you establish CIs, criminal informants, confidential informants. Um, these CIs are not there to make an arrest. They're there to get you information, to do it quietly, and they get paid for it. And usually, depending on what agencies you work with, where you live, all of that, they usually get paid pretty well. Um when I worked federally, I had some very well-paid CIs. Um, and, of course, I was doing fugitive extradition, so CIs were a big help in my job. Um, and, I mean, and then you have the cheap side. Like, my dad had some that they would just sell out their friends for a black and mild. <laughs> Seriously? No joke. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Not going to lie. <laughs> I kept several packs of black and milds in my patrol car. They would sell out their friends for a for single reason, black and mild. I'd be like, hey, yo, come here. I got something for you. Hand them a, a pack of black and milds, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, you can go find them over here at such and such. Yeah. All right. Holy See you shit. later. My, my, dad yep. worked, my dad worked the hood for 20 years. So, so, so Aaron, tell me something. Just huh. because you probably have – no offense, Caleb uh, – you probably oh he has CI he has better CI information than I do. Okay. My, mine are very so, different. Tell me this, Aaron, from a professional thing. If you had a paid informant, obviously, just we've already established, this paid informant, he's supposed to give you intelligence. Is a paid informant supposed to like basically go up to somebody and, and solicit their help in an illegal activity and then turn on them and say, "Yeah, he did that." Go no, that. Uh, and I don't like the term entrapment. It's more coercion. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel it like would, that's no, more appropriate. It would be it entrapment if he was a if he was actually a cop. Correct. Entrapment. The term entrapment 
pertains strictly to those in a law enforcement nature, whether it be local, state, federal, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm forcing you and tricking you to do something illegal that you would not normally do, but you're, you're convinced in such a way that it becomes a grandiose reward for you. In this case, $500 to a man that's per, not working. per shotgun. The man's, the man's hurting for money. He's trying to take care of his family. He's going to jump on that. Any, any reasonable person would do I, that. I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in the law. If someone told me. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying to keep my security clearance, but yes, I would do it. ATF. Right. Yeah. And, and having said that, this is a man, Randy Weaver was not modifying these weapons on his own and selling them to the Aryan nation. His involvement with Aryan nation was, was strictly ideological. And yeah, he, he, was, he, and he, he was just providing he, a meeting place. Correct. He and was, he, he, he was trying out to with, right, hang out with them, socialize with them, try and get them into his ideology, you know, that kind of thing. And, but because the ATF is so hard up and they, at, at this time, the Aryan Nation was a huge target for them. Uh, Aryan Nation, Hell's Angels, um, and there was a third group, and I can't think of who it is off the top of my head. Um, Iron Order. And uh, if we were to go back and look at um, their involvement Command. with Hell's Angels, they yeah. fucked that up as well. Um, yeah. So... In this instance, the CI is coercing him to do something that he would not normally do. Oh no! Your your CIs do not do that. No. You and... will you will give them money that's marked. You'll tell them, "We know this is a drug house. You know this is drug house. This is the intel that you're giving us. In order for you to work off your part of the deal." You're going to go in there, use this marked money, and you're going to buy this exact amount of drugs. No more, no less. If you buy more, you're going to jail for, for possession. If you buy less, you're going to jail for theft because you took our money and you're trying to screw us. So that's it. That's all they would do. They would go in, they would buy it, they would come back, they would hand it to us, we would take and create a log in a report saying that we handed this CI number, blah, 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 um, a marked bill, serial number, such and such, um, on this date, this time he went into this house, he made this purchase from this person. And you give that description that he gives you. And all of that is put into your warrant. You go get that warrant approved. You go nail the guy. You find the marked bill and boom, there's your evidence. So at no time is he going to random people saying, Hey, yo man, I need some drugs. I want some drugs. I got some money. That's not what they do. Yeah. No. So, and they, in this and, instance, and they the typically don't pushing. provide, provide stuff for these people to do. They don't say, Oh, here's cocaine. Now I want you to sell it to me. Yeah. yeah. No. No, it was um, like there. All of mine came from 
like a random traffic stop or I know they're, they don't belong in the neighborhood. They're leaving the known drug house. Get I know that's fish. where you bought the dope. Boom. Nail them. Okay. Here's the deal. See this, all this paperwork right here. This is your arrest affidavit. You're going to work this off. I'm going to put you in contact with another agent who is going to work with you. If I find out from him that you haven't done this, he's filing this paperwork and you're going to jail. Period. And and of course, you also get paid as well. Um, and that that that's the thing. Like, it, it's all about the bigger fish. If we can cut the right. head off the snake, then right. the rest of the body dies. So that's where this yeah. came from. ATF has always been. They've always had a hard on for shit like this, um, and they right. they've this always gone outside of the rules. Yeah, right. I mean, technically speaking, this is something that's right up their alley. Yeah, but it's supposed to be, but they just they I, yeah. I don't know if it's rather they're just perpetually they don't get the budget, they don't care, or there's just they 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 have the government has so little regard for them that they're just allowed to do whatever the hell they want. It's well, I don't that, know. It's that last one. A- ATF has historically had this dogma that we're untouchable. We can do what we want to do within these parameters. And now mind you, their parameters are astronomical. They're ridiculous. And as long as we operate within these parameters, then nobody can do anything to us. And the, the whole, the whole thing that they exist for first of all i mean it's just the dea has probably done more to cur- to curb you know drug smuggling other dr- major drug operations and and everything the fbi has probably done more against armed smuggling in our nation's law enforcement history than any other one so i just i keep going back to it. it's like what what is it? it's like those, so, that meme of those from the office space or something it's like what what exactly is it you do here well so there mm-hmm. there's there was a funny video I actually saw about an ATF agent. So this ATF agent in plain clothes shows up to this guy's house, bangs on the door and demands to come see these guys' guns. Cause he's going to take them all. And the guy calls the cops and says, there's a guy claiming he's uh, he's law enforcement. He's saying he's a cop. Um, but he's in plain clothes. He's saying that he's going to come in here and take my guns and all of that. So cops roll up hot. They end up, uh, telling the guy to get on the ground. He won't listen. He goes, I, that's not going to happen. So all of the cops pulled their guns on him and tell him to get on the fucking ground, get on the ground. He goes, that's not going to happen. They go, get on the ground or you're getting tased. And one of them pulls out the taser and they ended up arresting the guy. Um, and they were like, listen, this is, you, you can't do this. You have to identify yourself as an ATF agent. Can't just walk around and do whatever the fuck you want to do. And of course he and pulled the, he pulled the whole, oh, this isn't going to be good for you guys. Bullshit. That federal agent. Listen, I was a federal agent. But ATF is a totally different thing. I mean, aren't you supposed to at least, Aaron, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, and or either one, um, 
correct me if I'm wrong, aren't you supposed to give like a courtesy notification to local law enforcement saying, hey, yes. I'm operating in the area. The only uh, time you do not is if it is a um, clandestine operation. Correct. Yeah, but if, for something like this, it sounds like it, yeah. it would be a routine for, Well, thing. for that, 100%. And, and number one, they're not going to go door to door. And they're not going to go on their own. They're going to be two agents hand in hand. They're going to have paperwork that substantiates why they need to go into your house and seize the weapons. They're not just going to go and do a gun grab. Well, the, the funny thing is, though, turns out that this guy actually was an ATF agent in plain clothes. Yeah. So yeah. what was By he himself. trying to do? Did he, he, like, did he, screw, so, did he screw something up at the office? Like, here's my chance to make up no, for that. No, I... I I don't know. Nothing really came of it because the ATF buried it um, like they usually do. So, but from what I can tell, the guy legally bought a silencer or something like that. Of course, to, you can buy a silencer. You just have to have a special license for it. Apparently, the ATF had no record of this guy's license, even though he has one. He bought something that they th claim was illegal. They wanted to take the gun or seize the gun or whatever, um, but they did it the wrong way. I will say, again, for me, my last two years in law enforcement, I was federal, working with the marshals, doing fugitive extradition. When you serve a warrant, when you do all of that, you notify federally, you notify the local jurisdiction because, number one, you want those extra bodies out there to help you too. So I'm going to notify that department and say, hey, we're in the area. We're serving this warrant. Um, do you have any guys you can spare to block the roads or just give us an extra gun? Blah, blah, blah. So um, right. enough, enough and, babbling about the ATF. And there was there was a lot of times where I would utilize those federal resources Yep. where I knew that the guy that I wanted was in that house. But I my hands were tied because I had to meet certain criteria in order for me to enter that house as opposed to a federal agent. He can, he can walk in that house anytime he fucking wants to I don't want when it's work. in regards to um, a parolee or probation or whatever. And so I'd call him up and the guys that I knew and be like, Hey man, you know what's going on? Hey, I'm trying to get hold of so-and-so. I believe he's at this house. Oh, all right. I'll meet you there. And he'd come in and he'd go, you know what? It looks like it's, um, oh yeah, this is a good day for a cursory check. Here we go. Yeah. And he'd make entry and boom, it, it's done. So it kind of went hand in hand. Yeah. You know? Um, so. So we're going to kind of bounce back and forth between the different things that happened. Um so, again, that in 1986, at a meeting of the Aryan Nations, that's when Randy Reaver was introduced to the informants. Uh, while Weaver had associations with the group, it's essential to clarify he wasn't an active member. Um, his connection was more social or ideological than organizational. Um, over the time, the informant had built a rapport with Weaver. And again, in 1989... The informant convinced Weaver to sell him two sawed-off shotguns. Uh, sawed-off shotguns, of course, can be illegal under U.S. federal law if they do not meet certain length requirements, among other stipulations. 
Um, this sale being unlawful gave the ATF le leverage over Weaver, which I'm going to kick that back to an old video. There was a Democratic senator or governor that she was all against the Second Amendment and she made a political video, her husband helped her, where she bought a shotgun and on video talking about how bad guns were, she cut the barrel short. Yeah. I heard, and I that. on video, a... It was a senator, yeah. She created a sawed-off shotgun. Yeah. And yeah. so people ended up reporting the video to the ATF. She got arrested for it. Yeah. It was it was oh, hilarious. Yeah, right. She goes, I didn't know. And they were like, that's the point. So, yeah, funny. That I just... I remember that, and I thought it was hilarious. Um, so after catching Weaver in the illegal sale, the ATF approached him with an offer. The essence of the deal was for Weaver to become an informant for them on the Aryan Nations. And the exchange the ATF would be would likely be lenient or drop the firearms charges. Of course, he doesn't like the government, so he refused the offer. This refusal coupled with his fugitive status from his missing court date, which uh, we will talk about here in a second, Heightened tensions between him and the federal agencies. Um, so, basically, what happened is after the illegal firearm sale, he was arrested in early 91. He was charged, released on bail, uh, and a court date was set for him to address the charges. What happened was his trial was initially set for February 19th, 1991, However, due to a clerical error, the notice sent to Weaver stated March 20th, 1991. Oh, exactly one year Whoops. before I was born. March that's 20th, a, March 20th a, is my that, birthday. Yeah. That's a that's a pretty big oh, yeah. whoops there. So like, what happens shit. is, and it happens all the time, believe it or not, but nowadays we catch it and we're lenient with it. Um, believing his court date was in March, Weaver did not show up on February 19th. The court, unaware of the date mix-up on the notice sent to Weaver, deemed his absence as failure to appear, or what we call FTA, which had significant legal impl implications. Um, of course, anytime you are an FTA, and I'm just going to tell everybody, no matter what your court case is, whether it's something like this, which is a felony and a federal offense, or something as simple as a traffic violation, do not miss your court dates. You won't believe how many people get a traffic violation. Um, something as simple as not having your car registered or not having insurance. You fix it. However, you do not go to court. Guess what? You're getting an FTA. And just like they did with him, they're going to give you a bench warrant for your arrest. Now, here's the thing. There's different types of warrants. Uh, a bench warrant, typically, in most places, they're not going to... Now, in his case, this is a little different because these are federal charges. But typically, with a bench warrant, they're not going to come look for you. However, if you are pulled over um, or if you happen to walk into the courthouse or a building like that, your name pops up they're going to arrest you if you pop up. Let's say you're going to the airport. Well, if they're if for some reason they look into you, that bench warrant's going to pop up, they're going to call, and they're going to extradite you. 
Um, so typically, nine times out of ten, you're not being looked for on a bench warrant. You will just be arrested if you are found by happenstance. But with his stuff, it being federal, it being firearms, and the ATF just having a hard-on for this guy, he becomes a fugitive. Um, so because of that, basically what happened is he was a perceived flight risk due to missing the court date. The marshals initiated surveillance on the Weaver property in the early 90s. Their aim was to assess the situation, figure out how to best arrest Weaver without incident. Uh, the surveillance continued on and off for several months leading up to the tragic events of 1992. Um, so, again, the marshal, the U.S. Marshals took over the case. Um, one of my favorite jobs I ever had. Due to the fugitive status, they began formulating a plan to apprehend Weaver. However, given his associations, the location of his residence, and concerns about potential confrontations, they decided to proceed with caution. The marshals initiated discreet surveillance on the Weaver property, hoping to capture him in a manner that minimized uh, potential conflict. The surveillance continued intermittently for many months, with marshals often studying the family's movements from a distance. So, the fugitive status combined with the family's uh, isolationist tendencies, Weaver's past associations, and rumors, some that were inflated, about the Weavers being heavily armed and suspicious of any government intervention elevated the perceived threat level. As a result, the marshals took a very cautious and extended approach to apprehending Weaver, which ultimately extended the timeline and tension leading up to the standoff. Um, now, as discussed earlier, by 1992, Randy Weaver had been under intermittent surveillance by the U.S. Marshal Service for several months due to his failure to appear in court. August 21st, 1992, several U.S. Marshals were scoping the Weaver property to assess the situation. The Weaver's dogs detected the Marshals, and the family's young son, Samuel Weaver, and a family friend named Kevin Harris went to investigate. The con a confrontation ensued. It's disputed who fired the first shot, but in the ensuing gunfight, a 14-year-old Samuel was shot in the back and killed. Marshal William Deegan was also killed in this altercation. So, yeah, this is probably the first real controversy in what is going to fuel the the crazies, as yes. it was. So, I've, I've looked this up. I've seen several things on here, and... So how it, 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 it essentially worked just like it is, a little more, added a little more into this. Um, so the Marshall team was doing exactly just that. They were scoping it out, looking for the best way of how to approach the situation. The, do the family dogs were, they were, the son and the friend were in the, and I believe Randy Weaver was also there too. Um, he was not outside yet until the, uh, he wasn't outside so, until the dog started barking. Yeah. The dogs go right toward the marshals because yeah, they detect them, and these dogs are guard dogs, so they go Correct. right to the threat. The dog attacks one of the marshals, and the marshal is forced to shoot and kill the dog. Which, the son, justified, I would have done the same thing. Uh, yes, um, yeah, the dog, It's there's no hatred to the dog. It's yeah. just doing what it's doing, but, you know, a big German shepherd is trying to maul you. you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. 
Uh, Samuel Weaver goes there and supposedly he shouts out, you son of a bitch, you killed my dog. He opens fire. The marsh and now court and then everything goes sideways at this point. The marshals start apparently try to identify themselves. The gunfire is going on. Randy Weaver's friend is wounded. And then, as, as he said, the son is shot and killed while in the back as he appeared to be, you know, leaving the scene. Now, Randy Weaver says that they were retreating and the marshals were shooting them. The marshal says they were fired on first. They tried to identify themselves and then they were fired upon. I, I, I looked at this and my opinion on this matter, I think this is going to sound weird. So I think they're both telling the truth, but it's for one thing. So I think that I think it worked just like this. The dog attacks the marshals. Marshals killed the dog. The son opened fire because he doesn't know what the mar. He doesn't know these are marshals. He just knows that some dude just killed his dog and he shoots probably because he's a 14 year old kid. He doesn't know any better. Um, Marshals open fire because they're being shot at, and in the exchange, a marshal is killed, the son is killed, and the friend is wounded, and then Randy Weaver and his family retreat into the cabin because they think they're they're under fire from somebody. So Here's my question. At what point did the marshals have the time to identify themselves? Because as far as I can tell, there's like seconds in between where there's a firefight. Here's my thoughts. Number one, the marshals... And I'm going to put this out there. The marshals were there legally. They had a warrant, which means they legally can be on the property for those that are going to say, oh, they they shouldn't have been there. Legally, they were allowed. They could have walked right into the house if they wanted to and grabbed the guy. They just wanted to try and do stuff safely. Um, What I think, I I agree with you that both sides are true. Um, What probably happened is the dogs bark, the dog attacks the marshal, the marshal shoots, kills the dog, and when Samuel Weaver says, you killed my fucking dog, the guys are yelling out, we're U.S. Marshals, we're U.S. Marshals. Samuel, again, 14-year-old boy, his do- his best friend was just killed, his, his dog. Um, and at this point, again, being 14, his emotions are going to run high. He's shot at tin cans before but never a person and he pulls out his gun and in the heat of the moment doesn't hear what they say and shoots kills then he retreats back in my opinion he's not i don't think he's retreating to run away i think dad trained him and he's retreating to find cover yeah yeah so like said, therefore ta- Technically, I would have shot the kid too, in the back. No, I I personally don't think the marshals did anything yeah, wrong. Yeah, I would have shot him in the back. Is, the only difference is, is that I just don't personally think they they identify themselves only because where is the time to do it? I I think the kid, from what I understand, and this is coming from Randy Weaver and his friend, there was literally you shot my dog, you son of a bitch, and then there's guns start firing. So I'm like, I get the feeling the marshals. When they got the the fall of Marshall and they retreated and they started like reorganizing, they're like, "You all heard it, right? We identified ourselves, oh, and right?" Not, right? And Which, not, necess- doesn't make any- not necessarily, not necessarily, because 
again, I've been in a firefight. We, I've told the story of me being shot, all of that. Um, I, I've identified myself under duress, where you are in the firefight and you're yelling out, U.S. Marshals, federal agent, federal agent, federal agent. Um, and so that could be how they identify themselves. Yes, and it was after the gunfire happened, but in that split second, you're, it's your your fight or flight comes in, and yeah. it's I have to protect myself. And then while they're taking cover in this firefight, it's, oh, shit, we need to make sure we identify ourselves. U.S. Marshals, U.S. Marshals. And they so they probably did identify themselves. It's just after the fact. Yeah. Probably. So, and this that is giving them sense. the benefit of the doubt. And from my yeah. personal experience being in I this just, situation. But again, I, just, I do believe it's like in this situation, it's like uh, I don't see where the Marshals went wrong. Now, as we're going forward with this, we're going to find out this is probably the last of the good stuff. Yeah, at this point, it's like it's all for the good for the U.S. government and their actions. It's all downhill. From that's because it's all downhill. That's because we get the FBI involved and they like to fuck things uh, up. Yeah, um, yeah. So, after the initial confrontation, situation quickly escalated. The FBI was called in, and the HRT hostage rescue team, an elite unit, was deployed. Um, now, when we talk about the HRT, obviously, you hear us talk about SWAT teams all the time. HRT is the SWAT team of all SWAT teams. If you make it into the FBI HRT team, you are the baddest of the bad. Uh, I would say from the guys I know personally that have been HRT, nine out of ten of them are ex-Special Forces. Um, Green Berets, SEALs, Rangers, things like that. Um, you do not get into HRT without being the best of the best. Um, now, the Weaver family, grieving and now even more distrustful of the authorities, barricaded themselves in their home. ROEs, rules of engagement. These are typical in any combat situation, whether overseas or here. Um, any law enforcement agency is given ROEs. Um... ROEs can also change based on situations, like we're going to see here. Do I agree with these ROEs? Absolutely not. Um, the rules of engagement for the FBI's HRT at Ruby Ridge were highly controversial. They were more aggressive than the standard rules, allowing agents to shoot armed adult members of the Weaver family on site. Now, I will tell you that the typical... ROE is you do not fire until you are fired upon. That is standard through, as far as I know, every single agency in the world. Um, you do not fire unless fired upon or unless you feel the imminent danger of being killed. Um, so the shoot on sight, that's typically given to a special forces sniper that's downrange looking for a member of al-qaeda hey you see this guy this is our ace of spades you yeah. have a shoot on site order i mean this is something that we we tell our we tell our guys in the military yeah. and then you at randy weaver 
for all of his anti-government rhetoric and choices. Yeah, and 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 some of his you know questionable you know life choices of what led him to this, what led to this incident. He's still an American citizen, due process. In this is not a, this is not good. So, and, and keep in mind also, if anybody wants to look this up, this is um, they make it sound like you know his cabin is right there and the FBI or whatever right on his lawn. This is a mountain. Yeah, these right? are, this, and these are 20 acres. Yeah. This is a mountain that this cabin is on and with the house on top of this mountain. So keep in mind, there are no... They, they're surrounding him, but reality speaking, they're not really in... They, there's not, they're not really in sight of this. So it's not like they could say, well, we had to watch out for agents. He's got a gun. Randy Weaver can't shoot anybody. Not Ran- really. At, Ran- at least not at this point. Yeah, so we have a Anakin Obi-Wan situation. I have the high ground. Uh-huh. You underestimate my power. <laughs> but uh, no, but it, what I say, I want to make sure everybody understands is, is that this is not something where literally the FBI is across the street and Randy Weaver is well within, you know, nominal firearms range Correct. of the FBI where they could say, oh, we're in danger. No, they're not. No. They're not. They're... It, it would have taken a sniper to to do anything to them. So this is where, this is how it also really emphasizes when we say this is controversial. This is very controversial. There is no immediate, as far as most people can discern, there's no immediate threat unless they approach this. Uh, unless they approach his home, which of course then that's a whole different spiel yeah so on august 22nd while randy weaver his daughter sarah and harris were visiting samuel's body in a nearby shed an hrt sniper fired at randy attempting to hit his spine to incapacitate him randy was injured but the bullet didn't achieve its intended purpose as the group rushed back to the house another shot was fired by the sniper intended for harris tragically the bullet passed through vicky weaver's head killing her while she was holding her infant daughter Alishaba. All right. So really quick, I know we're we kind of keep branching off, um, but there is another rule in law enforcement and in combat: we don't shoot to maim, we shoot to kill, or at least shoot to end the threat. So, so here's the thing. So, and I'm gonna tell you from personal experience, being involved in shootings, and from a legal standpoint, my dad will will I'm sure agree with this if I if I can shoot you if I feel comfortable enough that shooting you in the leg or in the hand or in the arm is enough to stop the threat I should not have to shoot you at all when I have other means such as a taser pepper spray things like that the threat was not immediate enough and that's where officers get into trouble because and where what people don't understand oh why did they kill him they could have just shot him in the leg that's legal ramification for me to say oh well i didn't feel threatened enough i could have used another means to incapacitate exactly um agree Oh, 100%. I mean, um, like, 
our our training was you shoot to neutralize it's if it happens that that the the subject of um, recipient of your fire downrange dies so be it but you're shooting to neutralize um, you're also shooting center mass now if that center mass happens to be his torso and that's what you're doing then you're shooting center mass to neutralize the threat Correct. if that center mass happens to be his head you're shooting to neutralize the threat yeah um, exactly at no point is any one of us going to shoot the arm the hand the leg to neutralize a suspect Correct. number one that shot is one in a million, even for SWAT guys. Number I mean, two, I, I think I'm a good shot, but there ain't no fucking way. Uh, yeah, uh, agreed. I'm right there with you. Uh, I know what I can do, and I would not even attempt that, especially under duress. Yeah. Um, and number two, it has been proven time and time and time again that shooting in such a fashion does not neutralize the threat. It doesn't. Adrenaline. That's why training, right? Training went to you shoot center mass, no matter what the center mass is. And then, of course, there's other drills if they have body armor and all that kind of stuff. Correct. And we won't go into any of that. Um, but the the whole shoot the leg thing, shoot the hand thing. I agree with Caleb. If it's coming down to that, you shouldn't be shooting anyways. Correct. You should no. be utilizing a beanbag round. You should be utilizing tear gas or um, pepper spray or taser or a taser round out of a shotgun, whatever. So um, there are a lot of op and that, different options. And that's the thing, too, is that's something that they it's amazing. So, of course, back then, this is the early 90s. Tasers didn't exist. Um I will say that I never had to deal with not having a taser. Um, but I know my dad went from not having one to having one. And I know tasers revolutionized the, the law enforcement game. Cause there was no more of having to pepper spray your fucking self in the face. Every yeah. time you're trying to pepper spray somebody <laughs> and get that spread out to everybody. Now you're incapacitated. Now you just have this taser that can hit them. They're down for the most part. Um, I, I've i had a suspect that uh, we shot him six times with a taser and he kept walking. But Jesus, he was high on PCP. That and he was seven foot three and 400 pounds. We had to break his kneecaps to get him down. And he Jesus. still tried to crawl towards us. Yeah, um, I think my dad. I think my dad had a situation similar to that too. And the guy was butt ass naked. Oh yeah, I mean, it, there's been Florida bath salts. Yeah, one guy. He he was he was a big. I mean, a big. Kids don't and do drugs. We hit him six times, and he just looked at us and went, "Please don't do that again." And, and everybody put their point, tasers I away. Just, I just dropped my taser and pulled my Glock out and was like, well, then this is the alternative. 
He goes, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to get down on the ground and put your hands behind your back. All you had to do was ask. All you had to do was ask. I'm like, bro, <laughs> we asked you 20 minutes ago before we we stuck you with 10 taser darts. And I'm, you know, like if you guys are wondering what a taser feels like, you can actually <laughs> for for I I'll say this: I'd rather be tased over pepper sprayed any day. Yeah. Um. So you can ask there are a lot of departments that you have to sign a waiver of course but they will allow you to be shocked by a taser so you understand what it feels like um so if you're ever wondering it's not fun but it's an experience so you can understand and again and i'll let everybody know that in order to carry a taser you have to be tased all of us are tased that's part of the certification Mm. I've I was tased every single year for my certification. It sucked. Um, just to give for those of you who aren't brave and don't want to do it, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just telling you right now, you're not you're fine for not doing it. But imagine every nerve ending, every nerve that you have in your body, being attached to a vice, and then be that thing being torqued to like a thousand pounds per square inch instantaneously and being held on there as as tight as you can for five seconds doesn't feel like five seconds feels a hell of a lot longer that's how i felt and then as soon as that happens you are immediately let go and you flop down on the thing like a marionette with their strings cut and yeah um some very interesting things can happen um i for myself i got the full full ride i went down and i just flopped down on the ground and i just laid there i had no motivation to move uh my my will to live was severely lacking if we're if i'm being completely honest with myself and the instructor just carried on instructing while i just laid there moaning and asking for my mommy so and then just just so everybody's aware a taser can deliver up to 50,000 volts um, to bridge the air gap. But once it... So basically it's... The way a typical taser works is you have a cartridge on a gun. The X-26 taser that's your most common. They have the new one, which I got to have, and it's absolutely gorgeous. You have two cartridges, so you can actually taste two different people at the same time. Um, And it's very much fun. Um, so 50,000 volts initially shoots it out. You hear the pop confetti also comes out. Um, and that is a safety thing to, so at the end, when you do your evidence, you have to collect the confetti and all of that. It's a pain in the ass. Um, so, and, but fun fact that the new taser confetti does not come out just so you know, and dad, I know you never got to deal with the new taser. Yeah, there's no confetti anymore because it is all digital now. So it, they can take a chip from the handle of the taser and put it into a computer now. Um, which is really cool. But but when it hits you, it's about 1,200 to 1,500 volts. It's not fun. It's no. not fun. A car battery is 12 volts, just so everybody yeah. knows. Um <laughs> But, um, uh, but yeah, so, uh, there's all of that to say, there's plenty of other things that could have been done. Um, 
Vicky Weaver should not have been killed. Um, especially they should not have been. They should not have been shooting, regardless. Correct. If you want to put snipers in position, that's fine, just in case. Correct. But keep in mind, they, the main camp of the FBI and marshals, it's down at the bottom of this hill, mountain hill, whatever you want to call it. They, the, the agents would approach that point, but they would have to take a little bit of a hike down up there to get there. So it's fine to have them there, but again. There's unless Randy Weaver and, and company were about to charge down the hill, guns blazing. There's no reason to shoot these people. That's yeah. Uh, no. Um, following Vicar, Vicky Weaver's death, the family was even more hesitant to trust any attempts at negotiation. Standoff drew national attention. Of course, media outlets converged on Ruby Ridge, and the public watched as events unfolded. Uh, given the escalating situation and its public profile, the FBI sought outside help for negotiations. Bo Gritz, a former Green Beret and third-party presidential candidate, was called in to mediate. He had credibility with the Weaver family due to his background and outsider status. Over several days, Gritz was able to establish a rapport with Randy Weaver and facilitate communication between him and the authorities. On August 31st, 1992, after 11 days, Randy Weaver surrendered peacefully. Kevin, Har- Kevin Harris also surrendered. Both were arrested and taken into custody. Now, Ruby Red Siege had significant imp- implications. FBI's handling of the situation, especially rules of engagement, faced intense criticism. The incident became a rallying cry for anti-government and militia groups who saw it as a glaring op- example of government overreach and aggression. Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris were acquitted of murder and conspiracy charges at their subsequent trial. Harris was completely acquitted, while Weaver was convicted of failing to appear for his original court date. Government later awarded Weaver and his family a $3.1 million settlement due to his actions of, due to the actions of federal agents during the siege. Um, I mean, this was in for all for everybody. This was this was a shit. Show. I mean, yeah. there really isn't. It really isn't a label. This was a shit show. So. The FBI shows the marshals show up to do a routine surveillance to figure out how they're going to grab Randy Weaver. They're discovered. Firefight. Randy Weaver's son is killed. His friend is wo- severely wounded. A siege. The siege begins. Now, while this is happening, the FBI shows up to help set up a negotiation to take over from the marshals because now this isn't really the marshals' game anymore. Um, and while this is happening. They're essentially being, the FBI feels like they're being surrounded because all of the people that they're investigating and trying to bring up on racketeering charges, conspiracy, every which way that they can do it, white supremacists, this is all their home bases are. Uh, actually, in fact, during the siege, there was actually another standoff that was happening. Um, it was downplayed, but it actually almost turned into another incident. Uh, three members of, I believe it was the Aryan Aryan Nation, tried to actually uh, run the blockade as it was to Randy Weir's home. They had guns, ammunition, and medical supplies. They were preparing to basically run the barricade and join up with Randy Weaver in the siege. So... This was insane. Like, I actually, if you want, for anybody who wants to see, like, a visual of what this looked like, the PBS 
did a great documentary on Ruby Ridge and how just everybody in the local area was like was right on the barricade. They were um, just screaming profanities and other, you know, obscenities at the government. Um, the one area, I believe it was part of the barricade is where the press was allowed. It became kind of like a rally center Every freaking far right white supremacist Christian revival leader that was tied with you know white supremacy and other racial radical racial politics at the time was uses as like a, a, a jumping off point a media uh, you know spectacle as it was for it. So I mean this this was this was insane. Um, but yeah, it's uh, Randy Weaver would actually, up until a few years before he died, which was actually last year, he became you know kind of the spokesperson on you know anti-government, yeah, um, kind of stuff. Um, actually, it point of fact, actually, even after everything, his family still owns Ruby Ridge. It's still yeah. family property. It, like so, like, his he, his daughters were awarded a um, hundred grand each. Um, he was given a million. His daughters were given a hundred grand each, and then he put the property in their names. And I believe they, at least one of them, lives there. Uh, I think the daughter Sarah, she does some kind of like pro- non-profit or some kind of like awareness thing where uh, they like I I forget what it is, but she has some kind of like charity or non-profit organization that um is that she uses Ruby Ridge for it. I don't know what it is or what it's about, but I remember she's kind of the the main one who, like, kind of handles that. Um, it is it is interesting to note, though, just um, uh, Randy Weaver, who kind of started off as, like, this, you know, fire and brimstone Christian zealot. He actually ended up dying as self-professed atheist. Which honestly, after everything that happened, I can't really say I blame them. Yeah. Uh. But yeah, that is kind of that is kind of Ruby Ridge. Now, yeah. as we'll see in in our next episode that we're going to do, I think we're covering Waco, right? Yeah. So the this so we're covering Waco next. Um, we're going to see that this incident was a lesson to a lot of law enforcement agencies, especially the FBI. Um, on how to do stuff a little bit differently, uh, de-escalation techniques, things like that. That plays a big part in Waco. However, <laughs> um, it didn't happen. It they took their time, but it backfired. Um, yeah, wait, yeah. Backfired. I mean, they they do a. I remember I said earlier, boy, federal government has a tendency to do knee-jerk reactions. Mm-hmm. So, here you have the FBI going way off the ranch in Ruby Ridge. ATF is involved in Waco, and there's a whole knee-jerk reaction, and they screwed the pooch. And you'll you'll see in, in our next episode that at one point they had home field advantage. Mm-hmm. And if, with, if they would have pressed per uh, operating procedure, it would have went down the way it went down. But they yeah. didn't do so, and here we are with another fiasco. So, so yeah, that uh, um, 
it, it's definitely going to be interesting because, of course, Waco, uh, we're going to be talking about that next week. Um, that, all, that obviously is going to lead to Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombings as he was motivated by both Ruby Ridge and Waco. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts, guys, on this? Uh, this is like typical. I mean, I worked for the federal... We we all worked for the federal government at one point in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but they fuck up. Yeah. And unf- it took them a long time up until... Not that long ago, probably actually, they they probably didn't really learn anything till nine eleven time two thousand yeah. early two thousands how to deal with this kind of stuff. So, I I'm glad we've learned differently. I will say from my federal training, we are trained very differently than this. Um, yeah, and but yeah, I I think if. They would have done their standard SOPs, standard operating procedures, um, and the ROEs would have been as they should have been. This would have ended a lot differently. I think that uh, Grits, right? Grits? Grits? Oh, Grits. I think he could have completely talked him out of it before any shooting would have happened. Mm. I, I think... If they would have stayed back, if they would have called him in from the beginning, it would he would have been able to pull them out with no issues, instead of having an eleven day siege. Yeah. Um. For me, now I agree completely with uh, with Caleb. Um. I think the government really screwed this from just, you know, not necessarily from the word. Well, actually, yeah, kind of from the word go. You know, they had the ATF going off the word of a paid informant not an agent this is this is all this this whole thing always gets me it's like you're you're literally using a criminal to do your dirty work um outside of the parameters that you're supposed to um but i i really i really feel like if also part of this is kind of on randy weaver as well now I say this in this point, like, I get he was financially struggling and everything, and he was coerced, enticed to do something that he should have never have done. But at the same point, though, um, Randy Weaver was, you know, he did not want to go to do this. He he did not, he, he, he let his ignorance and all, he believed all these ignorant things about the government. I mean, it doesn't take a... I mean, a de- halfway decent lawyer would have been able to beat this. It would have been literally, oh, how'd you get your information? Uh, we have a paid informant. Yeah, you mean an agent? No, it's an informant. Ah, okay, yeah, screw this. It would I, I really believe Randy Weaver probably would have been, if he had just, um, barring the clerical error, because even after that, he's still well past his court date. He didn't go. Like, even, even though the court date was wrong, the clerical error, he even passed May March twentieth. He he was not, um, he was not going. He was not leaving his home. <coughs> he was determined not to leave his home because he didn't trust the government. He thought they were going to take his family away from him. He was going to go away for life or a, what he felt was a trumped up charge. And I really felt like in this honest, case, he, he could have. Yeah, it, I, I'm not saying he would have gotten off. Like 
But at the same time, it's like, at a certain point, you've obviously got a lawyer at this point. I'm sure his lawyer was telling him, go to court. You're never he going to... stop talking to his lawyer. At, then, at a certain point, then, you know, Randy Weaver's got to take his own, into his own accountability. You know, he's got to say, hey, I need to face this in court. I may not trust the government. I may think this is bullshit. Me staying up in my cabin on my property is not going to make the problem go away. Yeah. And that's what I just, at that point at this time, I really felt like he thought, was like, if I just stay here, it'll be, it'll all go away. It'll forget about me. It's like, no, Randy, that's not going to happen. They're not going to forget about you. Even if they don't care about you trying, even if they decide they don't care for you to try and rat on the Aryan nations, you're still under a federal gun charges. That's not going to go away. So... As, this is where I feel Randy Weaver's responsibility for the situation is. If he just, you know, just faced up to it, fought this like everybody else does, maybe he goes away for a long time, maybe he doesn't. We'll never know. Yeah. Uh, Aaron? Yeah, you know, I, I get what you're saying. Um, he's... He is distrustful of the government to begin with. But here we are with um, the ATF and the FBI debacle kind of proved his point, you know? Yeah. He, yeah. he was adamantly against them in fear of them trying to take everything that he had, including family. They end up killing several of his family members, you know? So uh, playing devil's advocate... He in, in that aspect, he was right. You know, um, I I believe that the whole thing could have been avoided, like Caleb said, um, had the negotiations um, been allowed to continue properly, without the snipers having a green light. Um, then it would have been a different outcome. Uh, unfortunately, this time. Uh, in history, the FBI is trying to make a name for themselves. They're under scrutiny for the way several things have been handled. Several investigations have gone wrong. Now they're trying to clamp down on the Aryan Nation and Hell's Angels and a couple other clandestine groups. And so they're basically flexing their muscles. And look at us. This is who we are. We have this on lockdown kind of thing. You don't need to criticize us. Um, ATF, they're just, I mean, they're ATF. They, they are what they are. There's a reason why in today's time, right here, right now, they're talking about disbanding the whole ATF. It Just history speaks for itself. Um, I, I think it's a tragedy. I, I, I don't like the fact that the sniper, for whatever reason misses his shot twice and the second time cost the life of his wife. Um, that's, that's just poor marksmanship. You should know what your target is at all time, especially at that level of a marksman that they are. It's not acceptable. So um, now again, this is, you know, arm court, you know, armchair quarterbacking the whole thing. We weren't there. We don't know what's going on. 
we don't know what he's seeing, what, you know, the fluidity of the situation, that kind of thing. Um, just knowing that we know what we know. Um, I, I think the FBI went way beyond their ROE, way beyond, and used the fact that um, one of their own had already been taken out as their reason for doing so. Well, they're armed. They've already killed one of our own. So we're going to get them before they get us kind of thing. And I think that's what they, they hung their shirt on, unfortunately. Yeah. And unfortunately, history does not really kind of back them up on that. Yep. No, no, it does not. Well. All right. So. With that. We want to thank you all for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and as always, tip the bard. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. <laughs>